Church family, it's been a bit since I was a kid, but when I was a kid, my favorite show uh, on and on every afternoon was Batman. And my favorite episode was this particular episode called, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Rich? That was the title. And in this episode, there is a CEO of a company uh, who who gets on the wrong side of the bad guy of the episode, be the Riddler. And the Riddler kidnaps him, and you know, it's a typical Batman, it's a superhero show. So what are Batman and Robin doing? They are seeking to rescue the CEO. And like any good episode, it ends with them doing so. They rescue the CEO, but the Riddler got away so that they could come back and have another episode another day. But at the end of the episode, there's this interchange between Batman and Robin that was completely lost on me as a child. That now as a grown-up, I, I, I realize, there, wow, that's really the question, isn't it? And, and they're having this dialogue because the CEO really is a corrupt guy. And, and Robin says, man, it, it really stinks, Batman, that he, he, he basically gets away scot-free with, a, with millions of dollars to his name. To which Batman says, yes, But with the Riddler on the loose, he's up every night afraid for his life. And then he says, I guess the riddle is, how much money is a good night's sleep worth? Now, as a kid, I had no clue. You just go, all right, when's he coming? When's the Riddler coming back? What's the next episode? As a grown-up who has not known what a good night's sleep is worth in years, It hits a little different. It hits a little different because, as we all know, we live in a world where there is real stress and distress, where there is real anxiety, where there is real pressure, where there is danger, where the sum total of those things do not equal healthy sleeping habits. We are coming out of a year that has had many hard things, both abroad and personally. We are going into a year where most of us can already tell, we already know at least abroad, there's going to be some hard things. And so the question becomes simply today, how are you sleeping? And how are you going to sleep? Sounds like a strange question, but Scripture answers it for us. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3, we're going to take a one Sunday break, not knowing who is going to be traveling or whatnot, and it's so vital where we're at in Revelation to really be able to to walk week by week. We're just taking a one-week break here, and and we're going to look at Psalm chapter 3. And as we look at this, I want you to notice something. We're going to make sure we read every word of Psalm chapter 3, not just the, the verse numbers, because all of these words, if I were to pull out my Hebrew Bible, are there. So, Look with me, Psalm chapter 3, probably above verse 1, you're going to notice some small words. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Now, those are there in the Hebrew text, and it's vital that I explain to you the background so that you will really understand with me the weight of what the psalm says. You see, when you turn over to 2 Samuel... 2 Samuel chapter 11, David should be out leading his armies during the season of war. Instead, he's at home in his palace, and he's doing what he shouldn't be doing, which is 
spying a woman bathing on a rooftop. And that may sound strange if you've not seen the old city of David, but David's palace would have been on top of a hill overlooking the city. And filled with, with lust, he, he sends her this woman. We, we know the story. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David can't. David tries to get her husband to come back from war and, and lay with her and cover it up, but her husband is too righteous to do that, preferring to, to not taking any luxuries his men aren't, aren't getting. And so David commits not just an act of sexual morality, but then murders Uriah, who if, if you're well read in Samuel, Uriah's one of his mighty men. This is a friend. In the fallout of David's sin, he is confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He's confronted with his sin, and when confronted, he owns up and confesses. And, and Nathan says, you know, upon your confession, the Lord has indeed forgiven you, but there's going to be consequences. He says the child that, that is, uh, Bathsheba is pregnant with, that child will not survive. And then he says, not only that, but the the Lord is going to raise up. The Lord is going to allow an evil to rise up in your own household such that you will be held to an open disgrace. Now, you continue to move forward. David's violated. Unlike a man after God's own heart, he's, he's sinned. Like a man after God's own heart, he has openly confessed his sin when confronted with it. Consequences ensue, but years would go by. The child of Bathsheba would die, but years would go by. And one of David's daughters, Tamar, is, is assaulted by her half-brother, another one of David's sons. Remember, David has multiple wives and concubines. So she's assaulted by her half-brother, Amnon. David is furious about it, but he doesn't do anything. Now, Tamar's full brother and David's son Absalom decides to do something about it. So he sets up a trap, and in that trap, he slays Amnon, avenging the sin Amnon has committed against Tamar, his sister. Now, when that happens, Absalom flees for his life, fearing what might be David's wrath. He flees for several years, and after several years, uh, David, far from being wrathful, is just, he, he's broken. He's torn up and distressed by it. And he allows, in mercy, Absalom to come back, 2 Samuel 14, to the capital. But he doesn't see Absalom. And, and in, this, in this in between, 2 Samuel 15, is clear that, that Absalom, every day, he begins to dress the part of a mighty man. And he stays there in the city gates, the place of, of justice and business. Be like the old city square in a town where you might have the chamber of commerce and, and the, the courthouse all there, and that's, that's the place where the, the big business happens. And as, as Israelites would come in the gates, he would stop them and say, hey, the king doesn't have time for you. Let me handle that. And with smooth words, Absalom begins to win the hearts and woo the hearts of not just the people of Jerusalem, but the people of Israel, such that one day Absalom asks David, I'm going to go down. I've got a vow to repay in Hebron. That's the place where David was originally crowned king. And Absalom goes down not to repay a vow, but in Hebron to proclaim himself king. And when he does this, the people of Israel rally behind him. 
And word makes its way to David. Word makes its way to David. And the messenger comes and, and says, the hearts of the men are with Absalom. And David recognizes the danger. He and his family, they, they, they quickly pack up and flee. Coming down the palace in the city of David, they cross the Kidron Valley with the Brook of Kidron, that small valley in between the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. They would flee up and over the Mount of Olives, heads covered in shame, making their way out of the protection of a palace with the fortification of an army, having little army into the wilderness with no protection, where as they pass by various people, David is cursed and told, the Lord has abandoned you, you man of bloodshed. So here, that little statement, as we come to Psalm 3, David finds himself having been backstabbed by his own son, whom he loves dearly, betrayed by his own people and countrymen, not in the safety holed up in a tower and fortress, but out exposed in the open, surrounded, able to be attacked from every side, with even some of his own people saying, David, not only do we not like you, but God's done with you. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Here's what he writes, look with me. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance, there is no salvation, there is no rescue for him in God. Selah. He writes and he, and he says what we've already walked through. He says, Lord, take notice. Here's the reality of the situation, God. There are many people who are now, they are not just have risen up against me, but more are being added to their number daily. And they're not just opposed me, they're not just against me and seeking my life, they're, they're taunting me. They're saying of my soul, of my spirit, of that eternal part of my being. It's not just that there's no hope for your life this side, David. There's no hope for you, period. God has abandoned and forsaken you. Now, it's bad when you're in the minority and you have a massive group of people who's aiming to destroy you. Oh, how much worse to be told that in the midst of that, God wants nothing to do with you. And not only that, but even in David's own life, David knows some of what is happening is a result of the consequences of his willful disobedience against God. And he says, Selah, it's actually just for you Bible trivia buffs, this is the first use of the term Selah in all of the Psalms. And it's an interesting term, it's still debated, what does it mean? Some thinks it, it, it's just simply a pause or it's a, it's a musical marker denoting the instruments to, to change their tune, to, to give a greater, deeper focus to a more nobler note. Charles Spurgeon would define it in, in this way, it's a place for us to pause with our hearts and our mind to meditate on what has been said before moving forward. And it's fitting, church family, because just like David saw enemies multiplying around him, just like David was taunted by those enemies, 
we can easily see the same thing today. We see the same thing in our culture. We find uh, what's been labeled progressive doctrine sweeping through churches, changing what has always been understood to be the, the authoritative Word of God. We, we live in a day where all of a sudden we now have not only war in Ukraine but war in Israel both of those wars with nuclear implications, both of those wars in, in, in uh, situations that could easily combust into something greater that wraps all of the world up in it. Not only do we see that, we know. So we're all clear, tomorrow's the first day of 2024. And I feel quite confident 2024 will be the most chaotic election cycle our country will have ever seen. Oh, by the way, there's not just war in Ukraine and Israel, but wars being threatened in Taiwan. Uh, we deal with the reality of the economy. There's all sorts of seeming threats from culture that will make you lose sleep. Not just from culture, there's threats from our own surroundings. Undoubtedly, if we were to go person by person, there are friends, family members, coworkers, classmates. Maybe situations on social media where you've, you've, you've attempted to stand and walk rightly with the Lord and you have been met with opposition. And that opposition is like the rumor reads, spreading things and, and, and gaining more people to their side. There are threats from our own surroundings. There are threats from temptation. None of this includes the, the simple daily th threat of the enemy seeking to tempt and seduce with the siren song of temptation into sin to bring destruction, and then to cast shame. We don't just face threat from outside, we face it from within. There are some, undoubtedly, just like David's mind would have rang with, well, maybe God really has abandoned me. I mean, I'm guilty as charged. I committed immorality. I, I shed the blood of an innocent man. There are none of us in this room who are without sin to whom the enemy, since he can't do it before the Lord in heaven, won't come and whisper, the Lord's, why would the Lord want to be with you? Why, 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 why would you expect the Lord to pay attention to you? Why, don't you remember the things you did? Don't you remember the, 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 the ways you displeased God? Those are threats from within. There's other kind of threats from within. It's not just the voice of lies, but for some in the room, it's not tens of thousands of people opposing you. It's tens of thousands of cancer cells or other things in your own body betraying you. Church family, as we pause after the first two verses where it says, Selah, we realize none of us are a king of a nation backstabbed by our own son and chased out into the wilderness, but every one of us in this room feels stress and distress, anxiety and pain from some form of opposition that we live with daily in this world. And the question is, how do we respond to that? Well, good thing David keeps writing. Look what he says. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the one who lifts up my head, I was crying or I am crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. Here's, here's what David says. He says, Lord, here is the reality of the situation. 
I'm not ignoring it. I'm not exaggerating it. This is the reality. There are daily growing people who oppose me. They are saying that that you've abandoned me, that, that, that I have no hope in you. But here's how I am responding, Lord. I don't respond on the basis of their taunts, of their jeers. I respond on the basis of who you've revealed yourself to be, faithful and true, gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness, absolutely just. And David, a man after God's own heart, he cries out and he says, Lord, in a prayer of of faith, and by faith I don't mean wishful thinking. This is not the prayer of someone who's trying to find confidence. This is the prayer of someone who sees and is living in the midst of a horrible situation who in confidence prays. He says, Lord, you're a shield about me. Isn't that interesting language? Because a shield doesn't go about you. A shield really only protects some portion of the front of you. But he says, Lord, you are a shield, you are a defense about me beneath me, above me, behind me, to the sides of me, in front of me, around me, within me. You are a shield, God. You are my defense. There are things only you can do, God, to defend me that no piece of weaponry that I could pick up would be able to provide the same defense. He says, God, you are a shield about me. Not only does he say, God, are you a shield about me? He says, you're my glory. David's confidence, his boast, is not in his power or reputation as king and a man after God's own heart. His power, his his confidence, his boast, it is in the character and power of God Almighty. David is not seeking the glory of, of honor and recognition from this world. Instead, he seeks the glory that only comes from trusting God. It says, my glory. He says, God, you're the one who lifts my head. I have fled with a head covered in shame, but, but you're the one. I, I know, Lord, you're the one who actively, you are actively engaged in my life, engaged in sorrows, engaged in suffering, and you do not labor in my life, Lord, to keep my head hung in shame, but you work to lift my head up. You're my hope. And he says, I cried out. Literally, it's with my voice, I cried aloud. He didn't just think thoughts and pray silently, he he verbalized them, he he cried aloud and he said, Lord, you heard, you heard me and you responded And, and you responded, you didn't just respond, you didn't just reply, you didn't just give wisdom and, and leadership and guidance, but your response came from your holy mountain, which is incredible imagery. Because you see that the city of David, I, I've mentioned this earlier, David's palace sat on top of the hill. It looked down on the city. In that palace was the throne of David, where David sat as king, where he has now had to flee and and no longer is king. But that palace set in the shadow of Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion's holy hill set the tabernacle and later the temple, which represented God's presence, His governance, His rule. And in that tabernacle, later the temple would be the Ark of the Covenant, which was the seed of justice, the seed of mercy. It was the sign, a visible depiction of God's faithfulness to His people and to His covenant. 
See, when he says, I cried and the Lord heard and responded from his holy mountain, understand the throne that God sits on is higher and greater and more permanent than any throne that a deposer of man may sit on. How do you respond to the reality of of suffering, church family? We respond by crying out to the Lord and walking in faith. We cry out to the Lord. David cries out. Do you notice that he doesn't just sit and stew? He doesn't just just sit and try to figure out, well, how am I going to find my way out of this, Lord? How am I going to to, to work things together to get out? He, He doesn't just sit there and go, this is so heavy. Let me just keep it all trapped in my soul. Like it's so tempting for so many of us to do. This is just so heavy. It's weighing me so deeply. I just, I don't even know how to verbalize it. And so I don't even try. No, David, David cries, Lord, here's the problem. Here's what I'm facing. Here's what's going on. Church family, this is exactly what we're told to do all throughout scripture. Be anxious, be living in anxiety for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We've got to cry out. We've got to take the heavy burden, the heavy reality of stress. We've got to cry out. We've got to bring it before the Lord. By the way, do you realize this is the exact example Jesus gave us in the garden? Father, if there be any way, this cup is heavy to bear. Let it pass from me. However, not my will, but yours be done. Church family, we bring our cares to the one who cares for us. And by the way, sometimes we need to do that verbally. What I mean by verbally is all of us, I assume, if we pray, our natural disposition is to pray quietly. We bow our heads. Maybe we fold our hands. Maybe we get on our knees. Maybe we don't. But we, we pray in our mind. And there's nothing wrong with that. But understand the language here is David didn't just pray in his mind. He verbalized it. And and I will confess there are times in my own life when the weight of stress and anxiety is so heavy that the emotions within me are so cloudy, it is hard to pray in my mind. But if I will use my mouth and open it, I find a greater clarity to actually be able to express my request before God, even if it's as simple as saying, Lord, I truly don't even know what to say. To which then he can remind me, you don't know how to pray for what you ought. I, the Holy Spirit, pray for you with groanings too deep for words to describe. We pray, we cry aloud, but we don't just cry aloud. As we cry aloud, we we do so trusting God in faith. Listen, this is the key to David's life. David is not a perfect person at all. The Bible doesn't portray David. When it says David is a man after God's own heart, that doesn't mean David was without sin. There's only one man without sin. His name is Jesus. But here's what it does mean about David, and especially in the, the, the books of Samuel, there is a contrast The people want a king, and Saul looks and fits and fills the description, and Saul always doubts God's character and his word. David, on the other hand, even his own dad didn't think to bring him in to be looked at as king, but God said, this is the one I want, a man after my own heart. Well, what's the biggest difference? You will find over and over and over again that David takes God serious and trusts his word. 
even when he disobeys it. He obviously doesn't take God serious with Bathsheba and Uriah, but when confronted with his sin, he humbles himself and repents and turns. You see, David, David as a person is confident in, 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 the, in the person and word of God. And, and he declares it, church family, if we're going to respond to the danger of today, I'm not trying to say we're just gonna positive think. When I say walk by faith, we don't mean positive thinking. Positive thinking may or may not be true. I can go get on a basketball court and positive think all day that I can dunk a basketball, but it doesn't change the fact I can't dunk a basketball. No, faith is the complete dependence upon that which is true, though unseen. Well, what do we cling to? We cling to the fact that God is our shield. He defends His people, and our lives cannot be touched by anything that God does not either allow or cause if it's an issue of discipline and correction in our life. Now, I may not always see God's shield. Realize David's sitting out in the plain knowing there's tens of thousands of people seeking to end his life. He doesn't see some swirling spiritual shield in the sky around him. He just knows that nothing is going to touch him unless God allows it. We may or may not see God's shield around us, but it doesn't change the fact that if you're in Christ, God's shield is around us. Though God's shield doesn't exempt us from trial or hardship always, it does protect us from anything that would destroy us. We trust that He is our glory. Church family, some of us put a lot of weight in our own power, intelligence, determination, and reputation. And then when opposition and trial come and, and those go away, we begin to despair because we're not as strong or our reputation's taken a hit. Or, listen, we've got to have faith that He is our glory. It's not our power or reputation. It's not by our might that we live this life. It's by His. Amen. And the glory we seek, we don't seek the glory that, that can be given by men. We've got we've to rest firm in, in faith. We, we seek the glory that only God can give to His own as they walk faithfully with Him. We walk by faith, understanding He's our glory. He's our boast. He's our confidence. We trust that He lifts up our head. He, he, he will lift our head in time. Psalm 40, I cried out to the Lord. He heard my cry. He picked me up out of the merry bog. He set me on solid ground. He put within my heart a new song. There are some of us at the, the dangers and pains and hardships of this world. We are honestly struggling with grief and sorrow, and I have great news. There is nothing in Scripture that says a child of God cannot honestly struggle with grief and sorrow and pain. There's a whole book about it called Job where the people who get in trouble are the people who dismiss his sorrow and pain with cheap, cheapskate, false theological answers. Our Savior is a man well acquainted with, a man of sorrows, who cried with Mary, who keeps track of our tears with a bottle, Psalm 56. But we must all understand this. When it says God will lift our head, it may not mean in that deepest first moment of sorrow. When my grandmother was murdered, I read that psalm I just quoted to you, Psalm 40, and I realized right then and there, I can't heal myself. I can't put a new song in my heart. God must put that new song in my heart. And He'll do it in His timing. 
My job is just to come to his feet and weep and listen and worship, just like Mary. He is the lifter of our head, but he's not just the lifter of our head. We pray, we, we, we trust him because of his leadership, church family. God knows we don't know what to do. God knows we are but dust living in a world of chaos. We saw it in James a year ago. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask, and God who is generous to give to all, he, he will give him wisdom. We cry out, trusting that God does hear and God will answer with what we need to know when we need to know it, not a moment late. And by the way, His answer may not be some supernatural answer or voice whispering in your head. It, it may be right here on the pages of His Word already revealed for you and I. He gives clear leadership. Not only this, we trust in his sovereign reign. God sits on his throne on his holy mountain, and his throne is higher and greater and more permanent than any throne of this world which opposes us. We have to come back. And listen, when we say walk by faith, here's what I mean. There is no other way around this. God is at work in all of our lives if we are saved by grace through faith. God is at work in all of our lives, deepening, strengthening, stretching, growing our faith. There's no other way to walk by God but by faith. Not wishful thinking, not positive thinking, confident walking in truth, though unseen. There is no way around God growing our faith, which means God's going to put us in situations where we are going to have to make a choice to trust what our eyes see, to trust what our ears hear, to trust what our heart may feel emotionally in that moment, or to actively take captive my thoughts in spite of what this world shows me, in spite of what the enemy tells me, in spite of what even my own heart may betray me emotionally with, and trust Him at His Word. It's a choice, and it's the only way to walk with Him. And it's a choice that when we make it, it's both going to enable us to do something and it's going to be the power for us to make the choice to do these things. Look, look what I mean. We're not through with the text. Look back with me. He says, he says, Lord, you see the problem. I'm crying out to you. I'm taking captive my thoughts. I'm trusting you in faith. And look what he says. As for me, I myself laid me down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves around about me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you smite all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Do you see what he says, church family? He says, Lord, I've cried out to you. I am actively trusting you, and now that I have paused and I've taken this moment to collect my thoughts, to turn my thoughts to you, to look up where you are seated, to set my thoughts on the things above, here's the choice I now make that I'm actually able to make. I go to bed. Now, the language there, church family, is not that David knew he needed to get a little bit of sleep, so he laid down and eventually was able to distract himself. And that's not what the language is. The language is literally, here I am, Lord, in an open field, 
completely exposed. The Kingdom of Israel, FBI's most wanted, most hunted list. Backstabbed by my own. Who else might betray me that's with me right now? All, think of all the thoughts that could come to his mind. I am in active danger, and what am I going to do, Lord, as a result of trust? I'm going to go to bed. I'm choosing to go to bed, and I'm going to sleep good tonight. That's what the language of the text is. It says not only that, not only am I making this choice to go to bed and, and put myself in the most ex exposed place, not only is my confidence so great that I'm going to go to sleep. And by the way, there's many examples in Scripture of people whose confidence is so great in the Lord they can sleep. Jesus slept in the boat. Peter slept in prison knowing he would be executed the next day. So asleep, the angel had to kick him twice. In fact, later on in Psalms, it says, God gives sleep to those whom he loves. Now, just proviso, if you got a little baby and you're not getting sleep, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It just means you got a little baby and you're going to learn the grace of God. <laughs> it says, I went down and I slept. Not only that, but I woke up this morning. No one killed me in my sleep. I woke up with the breath of life. I woke up to find that all of God's mercies that I used up in, in fear and anxiety the day before, all, all of the things that, that forced me to flee, all of God's mercies that sustained me yesterday, they're brand new this morning and they continue to provide what I need. I awake. It says, I, not only did I choose to go to sleep, but I choose not to be afraid. I'm still not gonna exaggerate the problem nor am I gonna ignore it. There are tens of thousands of people seeking my life but I'm not gonna live driven by fear of them. I will live driven by the fear of God. It says not only that, but he petitions the Lord, Lord, get up, arise, set yourself for battle, save me. Save me, God. Bring deliverance. And then he says this, for you smite all my enemies on the cheek, you shatter the teeth of the wicked. Lord, Lord my enemies who are, who are speaking and taunting me, saying that you've abandoned me, my enemies, which are like ravenous animals seeking to devour me, you sucker punch them so hard they cannot speak and they're like a lion with dentures who forgot them. They're powerless. Salvation belongs to you alone, O oh Lord. See, church family, here's the reality. If we respond to the Lord in the midst of the hardship of life, if we, if we are seeking, how on earth, how can I sleep? Well, one, it's not by ignoring the problem. We acknowledge the problem. There's a lot of problems in all our lives. But in the midst of acknowledging the problem, we, we cry out to the Lord. We let a request be made known to God, and, and we do it not in wishful thinking, not, but we do it choosing to be confident in spite of anything around us that God is exactly who He says He is. We're confident of His defense. We're, 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 we're confident and we're seeking His glory, not our own. Our, our boast and confidence is in Him, not, not us, not even in our Christian performance. We're confident that He sits on His throne. We're confident that He provides leadership. We're and when, when, when those things come together, they, they, it's, it's a two-sided sword. It's going to enable us to go to sleep. And it's also going to be the mean that when that thing is... When that faith is set in motion, the choices we're going to make, these are the choices we make. This, this is what faith now looks like lived out outwardly. That in the midst of trial, there is the ability for me to go to sleep and sleep well. Now, do you realize the, the magnitude of that statement? 
I mean, I read stuff all the time now. What do most people struggle with going to bed, right? We're so anxious, we're so heavy, we can't get to sleep, our thoughts wander, so we pull out our phones and we scroll endlessly through stuff that that releases dopamine in our brain to help us calm down because we're so anxiety-ridden, we can't get a good night's sleep. And it says if we cry out to the Lord with those anxieties, the weight of the world sitting on our shoulders, and we learn to set it on Him in faith, there's the ability to go to sleep. See, some of us choose not to go to sleep because we either, one, are too too proud and don't realize it that we think we can carry the weight of the world, or it's because we're unwilling to give the weight of the world to Him because we're really not sure if He really is good or if He really can do it. And we need to own that today. There's things, Bethany and I, we've had conversations a lot lately as we're being strained and pulled and tested in new ways. And and I I came to her the other day and I said, sweetie, I I think the reality is we've got to be humble enough to just own when God is stretching the most basic parts of our faith with the most basic truths. That That as much as As much as Philippians 4.13 has been abused by every Christian football team, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't mean you can bench 400 pounds. But when God calls you to be a husband and a father and a pastor in the midst of the crazy world of the 21st century, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do I really believe him at his word or not? A lot of days, my life probably doesn't look like I really believe his word him at his word. Because if it did, there'd be a whole lot less burden on my back and a whole lot more sleep, whether physically or metaphorically. See, we sleep. We make a choice to sleep, to to trust God. We make a choice to reject fear, to not be driven by fear, but to be driven by faith, to be driven by confidence in who he is at his word. We make a decision to, to pray. Listen, do you see David's, the heart of David? David says, I can go to sleep. I make a choice to sleep. I make a choice to not live driven by fear, driven by worry, instead driven by truth. But in all of this, he also still acknowledges there is wickedness taking place. God, deal with it. Listen, there's wickedness in our world, church family. And part of walking by faith in God is that we pray for God to bring justice and deal with the wickedness. I often wonder if sometimes there are certain things we don't see more justice in because maybe we as believers are uncomfortable to pray, God, bring justice in this. Expose truth. And then ultimately he praises God for his salvation, for the fact that there is a salvation and a deliverance. There is is the ability to have rest and peace, to live troubled but unafraid. Now here's what's interesting about this psalm, church family. It is very clearly a psalm that is reflective of a very intense moment in David's life. But throughout church history, many have noticed that it's got dual connotations. Because you see, David was king of Israel, and David was betrayed by his people, backstabbed by one of his most beloved, and he had to flee his palace, crossing the Kidron Valley, going up the Mount of Olives in shame and into the wilderness, from which a thousand years later, 
the king of Israel and all creation, would walk down that wilderness road down the Mount of Olives, celebrated by people calling him king. He would, on that path down, pass the Garden of Gethsemane, where days later after one of his most beloved would leave the Last Supper to go betray him, he would at night cross the Kidron Valley and in that garden he would pray. And in that garden, that one whom he loves would betray him. And he would then cross the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, not for flight of his life, but because of the wickedness and sin of our life. He would go into that city where his own people would betray him in mass like vicious animals screaming, crucify, crucify. He would endure trial and pain and agony, the likes of which we will never know in Christ. He would be told and jeered, God is not with you. Get down off that cross. Even Jesus would recite the beginning of Psalm 2, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he would sleep the real sleep of death. And three days later, he would wake up, resurrected forevermore. Church family, this is the reason we have hope. This is the reason we can praise him for his salvation. This is the reason we can honestly come before him and say, Lord, here is the situation. I am crying out to you. I will trust who you are. You've proven who you are on the cross and the empty tomb. I will trust you because of who you are and because of who you are, I will go to sleep. I will wake up in your mercy. I will not live driven by fear, but by your truth. I, I, will, I will pray and seek for, for the, the justice and vindication you can bring, not the vengeance my own hand can bring. And I will praise you for your salvation because this is only possible because of who you are, Jesus, and what you did on the cross. And the only way you and I can experience it, church family, is in a personal response of salvation to Jesus Christ. This was the hope that David looked forward to, church family. This is the hope that we look back to, knowing the rest of the story, that as we look back to the one who was crucified and rose, we look forward to his impending return. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard and trying times. None of us are exempt. You know how you're stirring. You know how you're moving. May you find our response both in this time of invitation and in the days to come this week. One of true worship of you. So Jesus, to you we look, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.